0: To the rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on the line today, on the show today with my co-hosts Emily and Jasmine. How's it going, ladies?
1: Going all right. Uh, fall is here. This is the season where I thrive. So, uh, pretty excited yes, about that. Yes, love fall. Yes. What about you, <laughs> all Jasmine? Good um
2: i'm fine i am sad that summer is over but i do like all the seasons so can't complain
0: well i particularly love the cooler temperatures and i love everything about fall like i can't even lie my birthday is in october so this is actually my favorite season but nonetheless we have a great show for you today um so on the docket for today's episode we have Uh, For our local news segment, an interview with Lisa Bloodgood, who's the Director of Advocacy and Education with the Newtown Creek Alliance. In our national news segment, we will discuss uh, Haitians being deported under Title 42. And for world news, we're going to go over to Honduras and discuss how a drug trafficking mayor in Honduras is fueling the U.S. immigration, U.S. migration crisis. So we're gonna go ahead and kick off the episode with our local news segment. Emily, why don't you go ahead and introduce our interview today? All
1: right, I'd be happy to. Uh, Lisa Bloodgood, thank you so much for joining us today. As Reese explained, you are the a director of advocate, the director of advocacy and education with the Newtown Creek Alliance, and we also uh, were introduced through Judy as part of our
3: NYU partnership. So. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Thank you everybody so much. I am actually really thrilled to be here with you today. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me and I'm excited to talk with everybody. Awesome. So I think to get started, I think, uh, Lisa,
1: if you would talk a little bit more about your role at the Newtown Creek Alliance and what it means to be uh, the Director of uh, Advocacy, and education, and as well, like how you got to know Judy and the NYU team, and how you came to us
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, my favorite things to talk about, so I started with Newtown Creek Alliance. I actually started as a volunteer in two thousand and twelve, and then i I worked for a council member in the in the area, um actually in North Brooklyn. And uh, my role there was all things environmental, um, including, of course, the environmental issues with the waterways, both the Newtown Creek and the Gowanus Canal. And so since the spring of 2017, I've been working for the organization, really trying to grow it and what it's able to do Um with community, uh, all the surrounding communities. Uh, my role initially was to work on some of the environmental education programming. Um, and when it became apparent that we were going to be able to grow, um, the expansion of my title to the director of advocacy and education was kind of warranted and, again, designed to be a catch-all for not only am I leading the environmental education programming, but so much more of the advocacy work of the organization kind of falls under what I do day to day. I'm not sure if you guys can tell, but my cat has joined me. I was going to ask
1: what their name was.
3: (laughs) Yeah, this is Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Um, She, Carlos the She is a Tuxedo cat she's about 13. She's my shadow. She's the
1: best. <laughs> well, she can join us for the interview. Well, thank you so much for that background about your history mm-hmm. with the Newtown Creek Lions. How did you guys link up with our friends at NYU? Cuz I know that Judy put us in touch.
3: We wanted to have um, a really knowledgeable institutional partner. And so NYU and the School of Environmental Medicine um, was a really great fit and then the Center for Investigation, for the Investigation of Environmental Hazards in their Community Engagement Corps, which is headed by um, Judy Zelenkoff, was kind of like this really fantastic pairing. Um, they had resources and knowledge that at a community level is really hard to get access to. And we've probably been talking with them for the last year. Yeah, I think maybe Mm -hmm. September, early September is our one-year anniversary.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. And um, you started getting into it a little bit, but I know you and I have talked about the history of Newtown Creek, which you are so learned about. You have so much knowledge on this and um, a little bit about the history and how we've gotten to where we currently are. In North Brooklyn, around this creek and the status of it,
3: yeah, I love talking about this because it's so, um, you know, what Newtown Creek was—it it, it's so understated, and had it played such an outsized role in kind of even globally where we are um, with climate change, with so many different industries. I mean, Newtown Creek was. The epicenter of oil refining. And this is where it all began. Newtown Creek before the fossil fuel industry was home to the whale fuel industry. We still have a small tributary in Greenpoint that's called Whale Creek. And the reign of Newtown Creek's kind of innovation and real intense industrialization probably from like the 1860s to the 1960s, like a solid 100 years. Newtown Creek is unfortunately a federally designated Superfund site. Well, we're fortunate that we have the designation and we're getting a cleanup that's overseen by and assisted by the um, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is a federal environmental regulatory agency. We actually know who did so much of the polluting on the waterway. We have um, kind of right now 20 what's called PRPs, potentially responsible parties. Um, We have 20 of them, and they are going to actually pay for the cleanup of the waterway. So we're not reliant on the taxpayer money to to do our cleanup. The ARC. And trajectory of the waterway was you know it was a productive, thriving ecosystem, uh, eleven thousand acres of salt marsh grasses. there were uh, Native American tribes that were living along the shorelines, uh, Lena Lenape peoples and um, then colonization happened, and settlers came first it was. Agrarian and then very quickly became industrial and then very contaminated. All of the industry left in the 1960s. And, you know, we're still like figuring out our pathway forward. Like, what is the industry that's there now? There's some fossil fuels. I, I believe there are six fossil fuel facilities that are still active along the creek. There's there is no refining that's happening. It's mostly storage. Um, but the rest of the industry is waste and waste transfer. And it's still transforming. Uh, we see now a lot of like film and television production along Newtown Creek. We see kind of like this mixed economy that's kind of creative, some still partially manufacturing um, but certainly nowhere near what it was in its heyday.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa, for that. Some good history class right there. Um, so I also note that we talked about some of the, the mission of Newtown Creek Alliance, which is mm-hmm. restore, reveal, revitalize. Is that right? That is correct. If you could talk a little bit more about what that means and uh, uh, yeah, enlighten us, please.
3: <laughs> right. So our mission to restore, Reveal and revitalize Newtown Creek. The waterway is enormously degraded. We have problems with chemical contaminants in the um, the the benthic um, sediments. So, like all of the the soil, the mud, the muck at the bottom is is really, really very contaminated with some of the worst uh, kind of alphabet soup of chemical and industrial wastes. Um, it has the really awful and, uh, I don't know, visceral term, uh, black mayonnaise. That's kind of how the that is described, right? Ugh. Really bad. So restore our biggest most like important goal is to restore the health of the waterway and the ecosystems and the communities that are surrounding both the waterway itself and then the industrial communities as well um, and and that takes all kinds of different forms. I encourage people to you know visit our website and come uh, join us on some tours in the future to learn more about the specifics of what restore means to us, uh, because it is way more than we can get into in, in just a short time we have today. And then reveal is something that um, kind of goes hand in hand with restore, right? So human nature is a funny thing. We don't care about things. We don't know about that we can't see that we don't have relationships with um so most of your listeners probably have no idea what newtown creek is where it is what i'm even talking about and that's a big problem um it's been uh inaccessible for at least 100 years right where there's no access to it there's no um there's no like beautiful view or walkway or nobody lives next door it's really been this isolated waterway that um you know got dumped on and then because nobody was looking got dumped on even more and so revealing the waterway kind of shining a light on it for all new Yorkers to see is a big part of what we do as well and bringing people to the waterway showing them Both the pollution and the life that's there, showing people the opportunities that's there is a big part of what we're trying to do. Um, And, you know, there's a really incredible uh, boating community, both on the Brooklyn side and the Queens side, that bring people recreationally out into this waterway to canoe, to kayak, uh, and to really explore it. And I think this is a really... um, fun, exciting, different way for people to get to know a waterway like Newtown Creek. So if you're interested, check out those boat clubs. Um, And then the third part of um, our mission, revitalize. And sometimes this word can be really challenging, like, and be like gentrification triggering. <laughs> and so it's always a very important for me and for, for the work that we do to clarify this revitalization. And this is really all about the industrial businesses that are there and the industrial corridor that is surrounding the waterway. To revitalize that is to kind of protect, preserve, improve, and... Um, kind of bring into the 21st century, the industry that's already there. And so, you know, if you were to come join me to to on the creek one day, it's pretty obvious that a lot of the industries there are still doing the same things that they were doing 50, 60 years ago, maybe even, even more. And those practices are really not they're they're not sustainable practices they do not support you know the resiliency of the the business itself and it doesn't support the resilience and health of the community and so to revitalize those industrial integrity of the waterway is to make it so that these businesses are you know compatible with a future where we can all live and be thriving and healthy and that is the workers that is the uh, the surrounding communities all of the residents of New York City and also the ecology that's there alongside of it um, we talk a lot about like industry and ecology thriving together and being you know not mutually exclusive and that's I think very very important for for what we're doing so really super super simple mission. Really long explanation of 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 what all those words actually mean.
1: That was great, though. That was so informative. I think the last thing I wanna to bring up during this interview was the topic of gentrification and digging into that a little bit more.
3: Yeah, yeah. Gentrification is um is really tough and it's not anything simple or straightforward it always kind of branches out into all these different webs and it can really surprise people. Um, And sometimes seemingly well-intentioned actions feed into this process that is all about displacement and loss and um, manipulation and all these really horrible things. Right. So I love this my organization so much, but also have to acknowledge that what was done 20, 30 years ago is a part of that narrative of that gentrification. Um, And so unfortunately, when you're transitioning from um, an industrial area and you want to clean it up, you want to have nicer things, you want to have access to your waterfronts. That draws the attention of uh, development forces and, and people with deep pockets. So many people have been displaced. They you know, cannot come back. They cannot afford to live here. And the work that we do as an organization, we have to be really careful um, so that when we are talking about the preservation of, of this industrial area, we're talking about it in a way that make sure as much as we possibly can, that um, the industry will keep its foothold and will not be pushed out. And so that those jobs are there and the community members that rely on those jobs have cont- you know, long-term access to those jobs.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa, mm-hmm. for coming today. Uh, it's been so wonderful to hear you talk about this uh, really important work Uh, in the community that you guys are doing. Would you share some of the events coming up that you have?
3: Coming up, we're going to be working with uh, NYU. We've got a science snippet all about microplastics on September 30th. So this is really short, these science snippets, um, but you can kind of tune in and ask a researcher and ask somebody that's even more knowledgeable than myself Uh, questions about microplastics. And this is in in particular microplastics in our environment, in the air that we breathe, um, probably in our bodies, definitely in our water. So really, really great event. Um, And short and sweet too. I think it's just going to be another 20 minutes. So totally worth, um, worth tuning in for that. Um, we also, we are doing a couple like nature tours with Hunter's Point Parks Conservancy. We've got um, one event for kids and one event for adults coming up in October. And then um, we have our really fantastic annual fundraiser benefit, the title toast, which is going to be October 21st. Uh, if you're interested, this now, our tickets, we're, we're trying to raise money. We're trying to support the work that we do, but um, it's it's a really great event, and there's all kinds of people that are living next to and working on the waterway that we all meet, and it's a really interesting mix of people. And, um, and yeah, we haven't been together in person since 2019, so this is going to be a really exciting and important event. Um, gathering and celebration uh so yeah if you're interested please 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 come to the title toast it'll be a lot of fun awesome well thank
1: you again lisa bloodgood and from the newtown creek alliance uh everyone check it out learn more about the newtown creek uh stay up on the important changes happening in the community
3: thank you so much for having me our website is newtowncreekalliance.org. Um, And yeah, see you on the creek. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much again, Lisa, for being here today. And thank you, Emily, for leading us through that interview. A lot of great things that they're doing in the community and definitely a good space for people to check out um, if you're looking to do something different and learn a little bit more about the Brooklyn and basic New York City um, terrain. So we're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break for the day. Uh, this track is called City Dreams and it's by a few artists uh, Telemachus, Phone, and Javier Santiago. We'll be right back.
2: Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free VK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks thanks and here's Teresa.
0: Welcome back to Objections to the Rule of Your Sunday afternoon news after the So before we hop into our national news segment, I just want to shout out an event that's coming up um, that I will be facilitating along with some of our partners at NYU Langone. This will be the 6th annual NYU Langone Health Experience Symposium and it will be from Fostering authentic community academic partnerships that use science to address environmental harm and justice. So I think it will really cap a lot of the interviews that we've had uh, in our partnership with NYU. It's a great way to enlarge community. Just some of the things that have been done and some of the opportunities that are available to address um, environmental injustice within urban communities in New York City. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, tickets are available. going to go ahead and jump into our national news segment jasmine take it
2: away this is a story that uh, came to my mind because i'm sure we've all seen um, the really terrible images of border agents in um, texas and del rio um, hitting and yelling at and just being incredibly inhumane to haitian migrants on the border um, so i found an article that does a pretty good job of breaking down on um, what's happening and what the reason is behind um, the Haitian asylum seekers being turned away. So this is an article that was in uh, Rolling Stone. It came out on September the 21st. The author is Ryan Bort, V O R T, um, and the name of the article is Biden Channels Stephen Miller to Deport Haitian Asylum Seekers. Um, It's a long article, so I'm not going to read everything um, verbatim, but this is uh, most of what it contains. And you can, of course, go on the website um, and read the thing in its entirety on your own. Um, So on Sunday, September 19th, three flights containing over 320 Haitian migrants arrived in Port-au-Prince part of the Biden administration's effort to expel the nearly 15,000 migrants who have been camped in the border town of Del Rio, Texas, waiting to seek asylum in the United States. Six more flights were expected to leave for Haiti on Tuesday the 21st, and seven were expected to depart daily beginning on Wednesday the 22nd, according to the Associated Press. U.S. law protects the right of refugees to apply for asylum once they are in the United States, but Title 42, a public health provision the Trump administration implemented in March 2020, allows for their immediate deportation. The provision, reportedly pushed by Trump immigration hawk and virulent racist Stephen Miller, is based on the idea that migrants pose a unique public health risk as the United States attempts to combat the pandemic. It makes no sense from a public health perspective. It makes no sense at all, says Dr. Ronald Waldman, president of the human rights group Doctors of the World. The prohibition for crossing the border has been applied selectively to asylum seekers, but students are allowed to cross the border. Business people are allowed to cross the border. There's a lot of people crossing the border. It's a laughable line of reasoning. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're trying to convince people of the importance of public health and to listen to the advice and recommendations of public health authorities. It's making a mockery of public health. I think many of us were hopeful that with the advent of the Biden administration, some of the more specious and spurious policies like Title 42 would be revoked, adds Dr. Michelle Heisler medical director of Physicians for Human Rights. There has never, ever been any public health basis for singling out asylum seekers for deportation. Waldman and Heisler were two of the dozens of doctors who signed a letter to the Centers of Disease Control last month expressing grave concern over Title 42, which the Biden administration has been using, if not abusing, to circumvent humanitarian asylum laws since the president took office. The ACLU continued to fight Title 42 in court, and the Biden administration continued to defend it as necessary to combat the spread of COVID-19. On Thursday, however, Judge Emmett Sullivan of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that the administration cannot expel families under Title 42. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas defended the order While speaking in Del Rio on September 20th, and the Biden administration is appealing Judge Sullivan's ruling. The fact that the administration has decided to appeal that ruling and double down on this Trump era policy is really just such a travesty and a betrayal of the campaign promises that were made about a different type of immigration enforcement, adds Katherine Hampton, coordinator of the Asylum Network Program at Physicians for Human Rights. In striking down the administration's ability to expel families under Title 42, Judge Sullivan allowed the Biden administration a 14-day stay to prepare for the ruling to take effect. So what that means is he made the ruling that you cannot expel the families, and he said, you know, that that his own ruling would take effect within 14 days. The administration has responded by ramping up its expulsion of Haitians seeking asylum at the southern border sending them back to the earthquake-ravaged island nation whose president was assassinated this summer. Physicians for Human Rights is one of several organizations that have been pleading to consult with Biden's CDC over the order. Public health groups have said that their appeals to the agency have largely gone unanswered. It makes this White House administration look worse than Trump, says Patrice Lawrence of Black, an advocacy Advocacy Group for Undocumented Black Immigrants. It's one thing if the person explicitly said to you or ran on a platform to be evil, and then it's another when they ran on a platform that talked about equity and justice, and what they are doing is clearly not equity and justice. There's no plan for having a coherent humanitarian response, Heisler said. This is urgent now, and it's going to be especially urgent with climate change, which is going to lead to more massive migrations and climate refugees. We're absolutely not prepared for that. It's another area where we're just having ad hoc, cruel, inhumane responses to deal with a systemic problem. The climate crisis and the pandemic means it's also never been more important to build policy on science rather than political expediency. Paying lip service to the former isn't enough, and though Biden has rolled back some of the Trump administration's most insidious immigration policies, as Lawrence from UndocuBlack noted, in many ways, it's worse. It's clear that they're deporting Haitians for political, not humanitarian reasons, she adds, because what they're doing is just not adding up. It's just not adding up. Um, So I wanted to add um, these two things. The Special Envoy for Haiti, Ambassador Daniel Foote, um, who was a career member of Foreign Service, resigned on September 22nd, saying he will not be associated with the, quote, inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees. And according to CNBC, under Trump, more than 444,000 migrants were sent back using the Title 42 law. Since Biden took office in January, more than 690,000 migrants have been expelled through Title 42. Um, And just so that you're aware, as our listeners, there's a few organizations that you can look into and figure out ways that you can donate or give other support. Uh, One is called Haitian Bridge Alliance. Their Twitter page is at Haitian Bridge. No spaces, no punctuation. Their website is Haitianbridge.org. There's the UndocuBlack network that was mentioned in the article. Their UndocuBlack.org is their website. Their Twitter handle is UndocuBlack. That's U-N-D-O-C-U-B-L-A-C-K. And there's also Black Alliance for Just Immigration, or BAJI. Their Twitter account is at B-A-J-I-T-W-E-E-T. And their website is B-A-J-I
0: Wow, thank you so much for that good coverage, Jasmine. Um, can I just say the imagery that has been happening this week is just so overwhelming. Um, it's been really hard to see. And while, you know, I think that in other times in history, very similar stories were happening, very similar things were happening. just was not highlighted. We didn't see it. I don't think for one second this is a first, but this is the first time I've seen um enforcement officers on horses with whips and the amount of refugees that are going through this with the children it's really really overwhelming
2: yeah there were children as young as three years old on deportation flights to Haiti and there was more footage of when they hate when the Flights were landing in Port-au-Prince of ICE agents just dumping people's stuff everywhere, like, just with no care or concern whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and I think you talked about it a lot in that story, reported Jasmine, but this is a good reminder that just because someone is a Democrat, for example, that they're going to follow a platform that they're actually going to follow through on all of these great things that they promised. And you know, there's a it's right, like it's like better than Trump who was explicitly like trying to <laughs> burn the world down it felt like, but um you still have to stay vigilant and you can't just assume that someone's going to take the wheel and get everything where it needs to be.
0: And we can't depend on, you know, the rhetoric of party lines as well to really give us an idea of where these politicians stand on topics that are so prevalent in our country. You know, historically, the way that everyone shifted um, people of color and communities of color. I know when I was growing up, it was just one of those things that it was just like, yeah, we just vote one way, you know, unless you had a certain tax bracket, that's what you do. And that's just how it goes. We really have to be a little bit more, uh, and less complacent about research and how our politicians move on these topics and where they really stand. But we're seeing it play out, you know, America, the beautiful doing what it's always done. And while, you know, this executive order may have been uh, introduced in 14 days, well, will imagine what, ha- what happens in 14 days. People are going through this shit like right now, like as we speak and in 14 days, the situation will probably only be worse.
2: I mean, yeah, like one of the things that the article was saying is that they were using the 14 days basically to try to ram through as many expulsions as possible exactly. while they're also trying to overturn the ruling that told them to stop doing this. So, you know, I do think that they made a good point that um, a lot of people will think like, well, this person is explicitly evil. It kind of reminds me of the way people will sometimes talk about racism in the North versus the South. It's like they Mm -hmm. feel like because something isn't in your face, like calling you a racial slur or you don't have officially, you know, legally separate bathrooms or something like that, that, oh, this must be better when it's really more insidious. And because it's not as explicit, it's easier for people to deny that it's even a problem.
0: And it's easier for people to get caught up.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's like with this, it's like I do feel unfortunately there's a lot of people that, you know, because the person is Biden and they don't have a problem with Biden or they think that he's personable or he seems uh, whatever they feel about this guy. It's like if it were the big orange man, they would have a lot to say and they might be doing a lot like making a lot more of an effort to bring attention to these things or to stop them. But now that it's him, like there's a lot of, um, it's like there's a lot of momentum that just doesn't seem to be there. So I do think it's important, like if you can, you know, learn about organizations that are on the ground that are actually helping people in real time and also putting real pressure on whoever is in charge now. Please do that because it can't wait until you know election season. These are not things that happen every four years; they're happening every day in this country. And they've been happening to Haitians and other Black immigrants as well, even though they're often not the face of a lot of these issues.
0: And at the end of the day, on the world stage, asylum is a human right. So.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like it's a lot of people have a lot of negative things to say, but they have never, and I, you know, wouldn't wish it on their on my worst enemy to be in a situation where you're between a rock and a hard place like this because people don't make these decisions just because they feel like it it's out of desperation and trying to survive
0: exactly um thank you so much jasmine for not only delivering the story and giving us a a good uh, understanding of what's happening but offering some places that people can go to offer resources and, and gain more information Uh, Definitely prayers up And just keep your eye on this Um, Let's just be mindful You know, we're so blessed um, And sometimes we can't even connect To people that are living these lives This story is happening every day So my heart goes out to Anyone who's going through this And anybody whose family is as well We're going to go ahead and hop into our next Music break, I think we need A little bit of change On the mic right now This next track is called I Feel It And it's by John Bellion, Bellion, and it features Burner Boy. We'll be right back.
1: Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate.
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I am up next with our World News Story. So this article um, is an investigative piece from Reuters.com. Um, the author is Laura Bolton diner Bultis-Diner. Uh, and it's titled, How a Drug Trafficking Mayor in Honduras Healed the U.S. Migration Crisis. So, kind of runs uh, in alignment with the previous story. Nonetheless, here we go. Abel Bautista looked out at the vast pastures, ar- pastures around him and frowned. Once, he said, there were lines of people here for the harvest. Now, instead of coffee, there are verdant hills near the Honduran border with Guatemala, both few trees and almost none of these workers like him, who once picked them. Times are so hard here in his hometown that Batista, a 40-year-old farm worker, recently made a long, perilous trip with a 15-year-old son across two national borders in a failed attempt to enter the US. More than a dozen others from his extended family, including a teenage daughter, have made similar journeys in recent years, most successfully crossing the Rio Grande. One nephew and his infant son, family of the say, disappeared along the way. It's not just the cattle have replaced. It's not just that cattle have replaced the more labor extensive coffee crop in this highland corner of the third poorest country of the Americas. Worse, drug trafficking and violence have overtaken the streets of New and nearby towns. And converted surrounding farms into passageways for cocaine and Officials, meant to safeguard stability and development, meanwhile, are increasingly involved in the very crimes now pushing many locals to flee to the United States. In El Paracio, a town of about 20,000 people, these factors were personified by Alexander Ardan, a cattle rustler turned narcotic trafficker turned mayor who ruled this corner of Honduras like a fiefdom until he fled and surrendered to the U.S. authorities two years ago. Striking a plea deal with federal prosecutors, Ardan confessed to participation in 56 murders, torture, and trafficking as much as 250 tons of cocaine into the United States. With the help of senior officials from the ruling National Party, according to transcripts of testimony he gave to the U.S. courts, Arden consolidated land and power turning El Paricio into a cocaine corridor for partners, including Jaquen El Chapo Guzman, the convicted Mexican kingpin. Official Official complicity in the narco trade, a trend echoed elsewhere across Honduras and Central America, has exasperated an already long history of inequality in the region, further impoverishing much of the working class while enriching corrupt officials and wealthy elites who control most of the land, capital, and government. Public officials are so involved in the drug trade and other corrosive rackets, say local human rights group, migration researchers, and foreign diplomats, that the elite's criminality is a principal reason for the renewed exodus of people from Central America. It is a major contributor to the violence, the corruption, and the impunity that have polarized the country and caused many Hondurans to become migrants. U.S. Senator... Patrick Leahy, a long-term advocate of immigration reform and human rights issues related to Latin America, told Reuters. Since his arrest, Arden's testimony has convulsed Honduran politics and shined a rare light on alleged crimes at the highest level of government. Arden was a key witness in the U.S. drug trafficking conviction of Tony Hernandez, younger brother of President Juan Orlando Hernandez, and a former congressman, who was sentenced this year to a life in prison for his role in violent state-sponsored drug trafficking conspiracy, according to the prosecutors. Arden, now 45 years old and in federal custody, is also expected to be central to an ongoing investigation of President Hernandez himself, a target of a separate federal narcotic probe, according to the court filing by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, In this trial against Tony Hernandez, according to transcripts reviewed by Reuters, Arden said the president and his predecessor allowed him to traffic cocaine in exchange for millions of dollars in campaign contributions. In their February filing, prosecutors alleged President Hernandez sought to use drug trafficking to help assert power and control Honduras. They didn't detail specific crimes. In numerous public statements, the president denied wrongdoing, or that he ever enabled or struck deals with drug traffickers. He told local lawmakers earlier this year that U.S. prosecutors jeopardize cooperation between the two countries on counter-narcotics, migration, and other issues if they persist in believing testimony implicating him. If certain offices in the United States make the mistake of rewarding drug traffickers who gave false testimony, he said, effective cooperation systems will inevitably collapse. For people like the Batistas who have seen a legitimate local economy destroyed by crime and complicity of those in power, the lack of prospects have left choice but to seek have left choice but to seek opportunity elsewhere. In August, US authorities apprehended more than 39,000 Honduras attempting to cross the southern border without permission. One of the highest monthly figures on record according to the US Customs and Border Control. Honduras recently overtook Guatemala as the second leading source of unauthorized migrants to the U.S. behind Mexico. More than half a million Honduras, over 5% of the country's population, have been caught at the U.S. border since January, 2019. Faced with a swell of arrivals, U.S. President George Biden plans to send as much as four billion to Honduras, Guatemalan, Guatemala, and El Salvador. The aid meant to address root causes of migration will be targeted in large part toward programs to fight graft. The government mirroring moves of neighboring Guatemala has also weakened laws and agencies established to target corruption. Hernandez last year refused to reauthorize the presence of a group of foreign investigators backed by the Organization of American States who has successfully unearthed high-level graft schemes. Around El Paricio, when Arden built a a rose-colored city hall with the helipad with the helipad loosely modeled on the White House, the mayor was all but untouchable. He and associates brought up so much land and forced those unwilling to sell to leave their property away. Anyway, that farms, families, and livelihoods disappeared. He has amassed wealth and power. The rate of extreme poverty poverty by one measure of government data doubled in Aparicio, where most locals live on less than $73 a month one of the lowest income levels in Latin America. The career of Arden illustrate the links between corruption, impunity, and the surge of migration from Honduras to elsewhere in Central America. So I'll stop there. Uh, This piece, while it was investigative, was very eye-opening in the fact that it kind of shined a light on what's it like to really be in a dire situation as a migrant where those in power are contributing to everything that you're dealing with.
2: Yeah. It's like, there's so many places that have a similar story. It's like when you have like a nation state that's built off of like exploiting the native people and then, you know, exploiting the poor you know, even though like the country might become independent, a lot of that same, those same mechanisms of power and abuse, they just persist from, you know, being a colonial state to being independent, but having people be beholden to like corrupt, like business interests and everything. So.
0: Yeah. Um, I think one of the scariest things about this is that, you know, this, this person in the story, Arden, you know, was a community leader. He was the mayor of this town. Um, you know, someone charged with keeping it safe. And he was a part of this huge drug ring that was not only um, enabling others, you know, in the administration to get away with things, but really creating like a dire situation for everyone in his little plot of Honduras. Um, It's scary that power and politics can be fueled by drug traffickers, you know, murderers, massacres, uh, people of this nature, uh, nature, And that will be the guiding light for these regions. So what else are people to do but leave?
1: Well, thank you for sharing that story. I don't know much about the specifics of, you know, that area. And I'm glad that we have this segment on this show in order. Like, it's like a crash course and so much each week, I feel like. Um, And I also, I think you're right. I think it is a really interesting compliment to jasmine's story and those issues of what what drives people who seek refuge in the u.s and i think it's really easy for a lot of people in this country to dehumanize you know to to group a bunch of people to criminalize and to dehumanize and to say like oh those people over there and not think twice about it and when you you know i think to rehumanize these people is vital um and to remember the reasons that they're coming here um helps i think everyone i mean is important and it's easy to you know send people back in these really awful ways when you're not taking into consideration that they are just people who are in desperate situations yeah and i think there's also
2: um, I get kind of annoyed sometimes with the, the use and overuse of the term privilege. But it I do think one of the best things to do is to think about all of the things that you can take for granted in your life, like things that you don't even have to think twice about. There's somebody out there or millions of people that have to think about that every day. So just the fact that, you know, people will make comments sometimes like, well, you should just fix your own country. And it's like, you can take for granted in the U S in a lot of cases, if you're just in the average person that let's say, if you make a comment about a politician that you don't care for, it's not impossible that something bad would happen to you, but it's not as likely as if you're in some of these other countries where not only do you have to worry about the gangs or the narcos or whoever, but you also have government officials police that are all in league with them. You know, it's like what it's it's very easy to judge what you think somebody else should be doing when they don't even have a fraction of the tools to be able to do what you're claiming should be so easy. You know, it's like people being disappeared or like their whole family being killed and stuff like that. That's very real and people are that's what they're facing in these situations, you know, and it's, it's not a joke at all. It's not something to be minimized and it's not something you can just, I don't know, be brave and deal with on your own. So.
0: Yeah. Something that came up for me when doing this research for this story was the concept of, you know, what it means to be a black expatriate. Um, You know, we can look at historical figures who left the U S during the civil rights movement and um, similar movements to other countries just because they just couldn't take it anymore. They, you know, there was uh, no upside for them and their families. And they luckily were able to do that. But that's not everybody's situation. You know, even in America, trying to leave your situation wherever you are, I'm sure plenty of people who go through racial unrest a lot in their cities, more common than what we see possibly in New York on the surface level, uh, feel the need to leave, feel the need to get up and go somewhere where they can feel safe or that their contributions will be Um, They'll be paid for them. They can sustain their lives and they can just live in peace. That's not the case for most of the world. And I just wanted to take a minute for us to really let that sink in. Most of the world lives in poverty Um, and we don't really talk about that a lot on this show. But when you are in a situation where the leadership of your country is in cahoots with the people that's ruining it, you know, what other choice do you have? So not only just to humanize the migrant experience, but also to get people to understand, like, even in America, it's not as easy to leave. Um, so we have a lot in common uh, with people in these situations. We just can't even imagine what it's like to be stuck um, or to just not have an outlet. So just, you know, an overall, I think, theme for the show this week. We, we talked about a lot of things, but, you know, we really need to, to think about these things in greater context. This is not people over there. These are human beings that are in crisis and looking for a way out. They're just doing what they think is best. And, you know, obviously being faced with all types of opposition, um, whatever you can do to help would be wonderful. Even if it's just having dialogue with people to have a greater understanding about this situation and all those who face it on a daily basis.
2: Yeah. And there was something I was reading earlier and it was some guy from the Cato Institute, which I do not like. It's like a conservative think tank. And it was, um, they were making comparisons between, um, what's happening with certain, with select Afghan, uh, evacuees and the support that some of them are getting compared to what happens with my mi- migrants from Uh, Central America and from the Caribbean and like just to be clear like I do not in any way shape or form think that um, Afghans that are getting help like don't deserve the help that they're getting but the individual from the Cato Institute was saying like well it's a different situation because um, Americans support helping Afghans that were working for the U.S. government or like they feel we're responsible for helping them But when it comes to, you know, he was talking about Haitians and uh, people from the islands, people from Mexico and other Central in Central America. He was saying, you know, that's different because we have nothing to do with that. And I just, I try to emphasize it every week, especially when I do a world story. Nothing happens in a vacuum. History didn't start yesterday everything that you see happening, like there's a connection, like there's a connection between like who's selling the guns to these gangs and stuff, who's profiting off of like the drug industry. It's not just in that country. There's people in this country that, you know, they're doing drugs, that's funding stuff, like, and just people are so comfortable in like their ignorance where it makes it very easy for them to think that these are all completely separate crises when they're absolutely interconnected and there is a way that you in the middle of an empire are benefiting in some way or you know the way the country is set up is based in some way off of exploiting and extracting things from these other nations where you see people like in desperation I'm going to end there, but it just, it frustrates me how people think it's just so cut and dry. Like things have nothing to do with each other when they're all interconnected.
0: That's the word interconnected. This entire world um, is called dependent on each other. So Emily, you got some good news for us.
1: Yeah. This comes from the future earth. uh, Good news. Tuesdays, Instagram post today. And it's, they got it from mangabay.com, and it's ty- It's a uh, Malaysian government cancels plan to develop on a protected forest. And they, uh, the excerpt says after a week of protests from citizens and lawmakers alike, the Selangor state government canceled its plans to develop the Kuala Langa for, I'm sorry, the Kuala Langa North forest reserve. The forest reserve is a peat swamp habitat and home to some rare species. The government had intended to develop most of the land into housing. Uh, So just, you know, highlighting that activism works.
0: That's it. Thank you. I think we needed some good news for sure. Thank you for throwing that in there. So stay vigilant, people, um, and stay connected to one another in these stories and what's happening in the world. So that is it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is by a really cool band called Snarky Puppy. And the name of the song is Cemente. Happy Sunday. We'll see you next week.
4: Bye.
2: Goodbye. Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Peters Valley School of Craft. Peters Valley presents the Fall Craft Fair at the Sussex County, New Jersey Fairgrounds on September 25th and 26th. Visitors can browse and buy handcrafted pieces from over 100 exhibiting artists. Ticket sales support Peters Valley School of Craft, fostering creative thinking through fine craft education, programs, and events. Tickets and more information at PetersValley.org. That's P-E-T-E-R-S-V-A-L-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.